I want to invite you guys to turn with me to the book of Acts. If you've been here over the last little bit, you'll know we are making our way through a sermon series in this early Christian narrative, the book of Acts. And tonight, um, we come to the Stephen story, is what I'm calling it. Um, The story of Stephen and Stephen's stoning um, occupies 68 verses in the book of Acts. It's an important text. It's important for at least three reasons. First of all, it's important because the writer apparently thought it was important to give us such a thorough account Acts is filled with these scenes, and this one's triple, quadruple, even, for, even bigger than most others. Secondly, it's an important scene because it helps us see that the church enters into a completely new situation where preaching and proclaiming the gospel will now cost them their lives. And then finally, the story serves to get us honestly to the Apostle Paul, how he comes onto the scene. But I think for tonight, it offers us a very clear and present word. So we're going to read it together. And before we are, as a part of that, um, Ashley George will be reading our Old Testament reading. It's a custom and grace that we want to pair um, readings from both Testaments. Just to give you a sense of the way the scriptures fit together. So Ashley and I will be reading. This is from Psalm chapter 31, verses 13 through 16. For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. From Acts, beginning chapter, chapter 6, beginning in verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and some of those of, of Sicilia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. We have heard him say that Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length. 
but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, even though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge that I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there was a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Jesus made himself known to his brothers and Joseph's family because became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt and he died. He and her fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had brought for, bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them had been wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptians. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you are brothers, why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust them aside, saying, who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and he drew near to look. There came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and I have come to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, who they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of an angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. 
This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him in Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol, and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me to, to sl- did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did my hand not make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, in this moment... We ask that you would do the thing, Lord, that only you can do. Lord, I pray that you would take these words, Lord, that are in your word. Lord, that you would take the words that I've prepared. Lord, would you use them to great effect in our hearts and in our lives? And would you use them to give us people who have a tendency to be stubborn or great hope in our Lord Jesus? It's in his name that we pray. Amen. And those are very long reading. So thank you. So almost 25 years ago, some researchers in the Department of Psychology at a university uh, wanted to study a phenomenon that they called inattentional blindness inattentional blindness, the kind of blindness that comes from inattention. So not paying attention to something can make you blind. And to study this phenomenon, they created this video, and they had a group of, a large group of people come into a room and watch a video. And the first little clip on the video shows two teams of people. Some of them are wearing white shirts, some of them are wearing black shirts. Each team has a basketball. 
And then over the screen comes this command. Count how many passes the team in white make. And then suddenly they start weaving in and out, throwing passes, black team, white team are all throwing passes, and it starts going on and going on. And then finally it all ends, and they line up straight again. And it says the correct answer was 16 passes. But did you see the gorilla? And you're like, what? (laughs) So they back up the video, and sure enough, as the team was making passes, a woman in a gorilla suit walks right in the middle of all the passes, beats the chest, stands there, and then walks out of the screen. Now, the whole point of the video and the experiment in this concept called inintentional, inattentional blindness is this idea that you normally cannot see something you're not looking for. It's very, very hard to see something you're not paying attention to. And I tell you this because Stephen, in this very long speech that he gives, is taking aim at the leadership of Jerusalem and their inattentional blindness. So they didn't see Jesus. They missed him because they weren't exactly looking for him. And to make it even worse, it's in this scene that we begin to see the leaders of Jerusalem not just not paying attention and being blind, but beginning to willfully choose blindness even when Christ has been revealed. And so tonight, we're going to take a look at the leaders of Jerusalem and what's going on here. Because I think, as I read this story, when I read about the leaders of Jerusalem and their lack of paying attention, their blindness, perhaps even their stubbornness, I know that as I worked on this this week, it was like a mirror was held up to me. So here's the main thing I want you to hear tonight. If you don't hear anything else I'll say, this is the main thing that I want you to hear. Okay, it's, it's hard news, okay? It's hard news tonight. And here it is. It is very, very, very possible. It's not even possible. But when you read the pages of the scriptures, it is very, very likely to completely miss Jesus and what he offers. It's not just possible, it's actually likely. And there's a long history that Stephen lays out throughout the pages of the scriptures of God's people, the people that are the most, in theory, exposed to the things of him, being the most unable to see him. Another way to say this is to whom much has been revealed, much is required. So it's that's hard news that we're going to talk about, but just to make sure that you're aware, some really, really precious good news follows. So let's talk about the hard news and then the good news. 
So Stephen is brought before a council. Some accusations are being made against him. He's one of these early Christian leaders who's beginning to do signs and wonders, and people are coming to faith, and it's making the religious leaders of the day uncomfortable. And they seize him, arrest him, accuse him of saying blasphemous things about the tradition, about the religious tradition. And then he's asked in verse 1 of chapter 7, the high priest said, are these things so? And then Stephen proceeds to rattle off a 51-verse speech about literally everything that's ever happened. (laughs) It's not particularly attention-getting immediately. It doesn't have illustrations. There's no video clips that he shows halfway through. He just tells them everything that ever happened. And the question is, so why are they so mad? I mean, as I read that, I'm reading it out loud, and the words are starting to bleed together on my page, and I'm like starting to do this, and I'm like, why are they so mad? And the reason why they're so angry is because Stephen, in his speech, and I'm going to summarize what he says about them, he's going to say three very hard things for them to hear. Okay, so here's the first one. Here's the first thing he tells them. He tells them that God's people... Okay, the people of Israel, we will extend that to say those of us in this room have a very strong tendency to reject the Lord and the people he sends as messengers. I mean, he sums this up, and we'll jump around here and there. He sums this up in verse 52. Or verse 51 and 52, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? First thing he lays out for them is they have a long history of rejecting the Lord and rejecting the messengers that the Lord sends to them. A long history of it. He begins with Joseph. You heard me read it in verse 9. Joseph came on the scene. He was God's deliverer, and he was originally rejected. He was sold into slavery in Egypt. He had to be resurrected, in a sense, before he could then be the deliverer. And the Lord saved them anyway. He moves on in verses 27 to 29. He talks about Moses. Look at verse 27 of chapter 7. But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside and said, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? So Moses had to flee and become an exile. And guess what God did? He saved them and delivered them through Moses anyway. And the whole point of the speech is to say that Jesus Christ of Nazareth has has been sent to you once again to save and deliver you. And once again, you have rejected the Lord because you've rejected him. It's hard to know all the reasons that they reject him. But I think maybe the most plainly basic human reality, and I'll speak for me, 
but I have a feeling it will also speak for you. Man, we do not want a Lord to rule over us, do we? Man, don't we want our own self to be Lord? See, I'll speak personally. I, I actually really like Jesus as an idea. It's harder when he begins to intrude upon the things that I want to do or be. We have a tendency to reject the Lord, don't we? Here's the second thing that he tells them that they become angry about. He tells them that God's people have a tendency, a very, very strong tendency to look at the wrong thing. See, he begins his speech talking about Abraham. Look with me in verse 2 of chapter 7. Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. You see, the promise to Abraham is that God would give a descendant to Abraham. And it's through this descendant that he would build a people. And one day he would bless the entire world through this particular descendant. And the emphasis of the biblical story on a- of Abraham is Abraham's faith, his faith in what he could not see, his faith in the promise that was to come. And see, the book of Galatians is about how that very faith that was the faith of Abraham is now the faith that should and ought to be placed rightly in Abraham's kind of truest, most ultimate descendant, the capital D descendant, the capital J, Jesus, the capital C, Christ. But rather than looking at that, they began to just sort of be proud of their ethnic and national kind of heritage. They began to think that they were particularly self-righteous because of their heritage. They began to think they didn't need God in his saving because of their heritage. This is why Jesus will say to some of these same leaders, you say you're children of Abraham, I could make stones into children of Abraham. I thought some this week about the ways in which as, as, as Christian people in the American South, we kind of have this history and this heritage of faith. I was talking to somebody recently who said to me, I mean, you know, church planning, Birmingham, Alabama, everybody's going to go to church somewhere in Birmingham. And it's true. Have you noticed that? Everyone goes to church somewhere. Or they know where they would go Sunday if they decided to go. Right? It's a weird kind of culture. He moves on to talk about Moses. And see, through Moses, God had given this precious law, this covenant, these these, um, parameters by which he would engage them as a people, and they would be able to live with him as their God. 
But rather than looking at that beautiful thing, that invitation, they begun to look at fastidious moral code-keeping in a way that would intentionally and purposefully look down upon those around them in self-righteousness. I was thinking a lot this week about how that's what we're like, right? I heard someone say something like 10 years ago, and it's one of those things that I heard someone say that I haven't been able to unthink. You know what I'm talking about? And this person, who was not a Christian, said that Christians tend to have an intellectual inferiority complex like we're, like we're worried that the, the ideas that we believe in don't really hold up and we're nervous and anxious about that. But the problem is we sometimes combine that with a moral superiority complex. That somehow we also think we're better than everybody. You know, I, I just was thinking back to me in college. And um, it's, I don't know how much to get into this. Um, but let's just say... Um, I wasn't keeping any kind of moral code for a pretty long time. And then my faith became real to me, and I began to keep a moral code amazingly well. I kept it so well that I was self-righteous because of the things that I could do sort of in my moral life or not do or resist or whatever. See, that is a great example of how God's people, we just tend to look at the wrong thing. Our faith certainly comes with a moral code that will actually bring us life and joy and peace. But it's not intended to be a way to feel superior and self-righteous. That kind of pride is deeply, deeply devastating to the heart and soul. A pastor friend of mine, I heard him say one time, and I think it's really good, that in the Bible there's really not good versus evil. Um, there's really not these sort of categories of, of people that we think. Instead, the Bible's categories for people are mostly proud or humble. The pride of these leaders in Jerusalem, I know for me, just feels like me. And now here's the third thing that Stephen says that gets them extremely frustrated. You can, we can take a look at it at verse 46 through 50 of chapter 7. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did my hand make, did not my hand make all these things? Stephen is saying to them that now that Christ has arrived, their temple and the religious activities associated with their temple is no longer necessary. 
It's no longer necessary. And at, at this time, the temple had become corrupted. It beca- became a place of sort of peddling, marketing, religious experience. That's why they're selling things in the temple, and that's why Jesus comes and overturns it. It, it becomes kind of a marketplace where kind of hucksters are, are um marketing and peddling religious experiences, but it had lost what it was always there for, which was for the beauty and joy of the presence of God. In other words, the temple and its complex was making religious people busier, but it wasn't leading people into deeper communion with the God of all creation. And what Stephen is telling them to to do, or what he's telling them, is the temple's no longer necessary because the presence of God will now begin to dwell in the hearts of every individual believer. And God, his very presence will be wherever they are. And further, this temple was the access where, where God could meet man. But the place where God has now met man is the person and work of Jesus In other words, what Stephen is saying is embrace the one to whom the temple was always pointing. There's a place in the prophets where God's people are, are singing songs and they're, they're going through the motions and they're doing the sacrifices. They're doing all the stuff, but they're not obeying him. And God actually says to them, I, I don't, look, look, heaven's my throne, the earth's my footstool. I don't need the temple. I don't, there's a place in the prophecy where he says, I hate your songs. I hate your feasts. Rend your hearts and not your garments. I want to know and be with you. Because I love you, because I delight in you, O Israel. Because you're mine. Don't look at the wrong thing. The hard news is that we just have the tendency to miss the Lord, don't we? To just miss him. I'm not even sure why. I wonder if each of you in your own way can think through why. The Protestant reformer Martin Luther, tomorrow is actually Reformation Day, for those of you guys who did not know. Um, the Protestant reformer Martin Luther um, told a story once of a uh, German Christian who had this experience in the worship service. So this is like a third-hand story, right? So German man has an experience in worship. He tells Martin Luther, who tells it to a group of people, who someone writes it down, and I've read it. So it's like varying degrees away here. But according to this German worshiper, while in worship, while saying the Nicene Creed, The Nicene Creed has this line that says, for us and for our salvation. While saying the Nicene Creed, this German Christian man is just kind of sitting there sort of bored saying the creed. And then all of a sudden, he sees a vision of the devil himself. And the devil slaps him and says, how can you be saying these words so unmoved? I'm resisting Jesus but I believe these things and shudder. And you sit there and say it's so unmoved. 
And Martin Luther wasn't talking about having now a, a sort of emotional experience of being moved. It was, it, the point of Luther's little talk at the table there was that we can somehow sometimes miss the precious things that Christ has done for us. We can just miss it while coming to church and doing stuff and going to home group. It's hard news that we have a tendency to miss it, but let me turn this thing rather quickly to the good news. And the good news, as plain as I can tell you, is that you don't have to miss it. You don't have to miss it. See, because Jesus Christ, again, has been sent as a deliverer. He's been sent as a deliverer. And the whole point of Stephen even saying all these things is an invitation for each of these stubborn people with a tendency to pay no attention and to miss it or to willfully reject it and be stubborn just like us can hear it and now do differently. So let me just tell you a few things about Jesus before we celebrate what he's done at this table. First of all, the Bible teaches us, and I know you know this, that Jesus Christ became incarnate, that he he put on human skin. So if you ever have wanted to know what the invisible God of the universe is like, you don't have to stare at the wrong thing into the sky of ideas about what you think a divine being might actually be like. The Bible says that we've been given the exact representation of his nature in Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, we have Jesus. We can look at the right thing, one person. Secondly, have you ever noticed when you read the gospel stories how the most frequent thing Jesus tends to do is heal blind people? Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever noticed that? He's always healing blind people. Like, like every third paragraph, a blind person's getting healed. Now, let me, just, let me just tell you, that isn't just about, ooh, he does something amazingly powerful, although healing a blind person is certainly that. It's more of a paradigm of the way that he works. People who can't see, he touches them or speaks to them, and suddenly they can I don't know where you were when all of a sudden you started seeing. It might have been foggy and dim at first. And the Bible says we still see through the mirror dimly. Um, my sister-in-law, her name is Abby. Um, she was born when Mandy and I were dating when we were like 18. This is a long story. Um, but when Abby was little, when she was four, on like a Christmas, I went to wake her up for Christmas, and she laid there, and she had her eyes shut, and she said, hold on, Joel, I need to open them slowly. That's, sometimes it's slow. Sometimes we come to see slowly. But I wonder where you were when you suddenly began to start seeing. Jesus is a savior who opens blinds blind eyes. Okay, more about Jesus. He's gone to the cross to purchase forgiveness for sin, particularly inattention and stubbornness. He was raised from the dead in order to make us alive in his spirit. See, to whom much has been revealed, much is required, but the whole thing is Jesus then provides everything he's ever required. 
The scriptures teach that we'll struggle with blindness until we don't. When we see his face fully and finally. So if you're here tonight and you're like me and the stubbornness of the religious leaders in Jerusalem feels like a mirror to you, I think the invitation is simply to turn to him. For the first time, for the 5,000th time, for the first time today, for a fresh new week, your failures need not be final. Let's pray.